want a title for this message. It's called Making the Best Use of Time. Let's read together. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, Lord, I pray that you would bring it to life for us. Lord, these wouldn't just be words that we go through that exist in a book, but they would be words that come alive before our eyes and we see how they operate in our lives as commands, as principles, as encouragements, as helps. Lord, would we see ourselves in the mirror today of your word? And would we go away and make changes? Changes that are going to help us to make the best use of the time. Lord, sober our hearts, equip our hearts, encourage our hearts, have your way amongst us. Amen. April the 20th, 1999, started like any school day in the house of Mrs. Burnell. At 45, she writes, Brad, my husband, left for work. And a little later, I got up to wake the kids. Getting teenagers out of bed is always a small battle, but that Tuesday was especially difficult. Cassie had stayed up late the night before, catching up on homework, and her books were all over the kitchen table. Her cat's litter box needed attention, and we were already running late with breakfast. I remember trying not to lecture her about all the things that needed doing before she left for school. About 7.20, Chris kissed me goodbye and clattered down the stairs and out of the house. Cassie stopped at the door to put on her shoes. Her beloved black velvet Doc Martens, which she wore rain or shine, even with dresses, she grabbed a backpack and headed after her brother. As she left, I leaned over the banister to say goodbye like I always do. Bye, Cass. I love you. Love you too, Mum. She mumbled back. Then she was gone through the backyard over the fence, and across the soccer field to the high school, which is only a hundred yards away. I dressed, made myself a cup of coffee, locked up, and drove off to work. For what I have since been told, it was about 11.15 that morning when Cassie walked into the high school library, backpack on her shoulder, to do her latest homework assignment, another installment of Macbeth for English class. Her friend Crystal then told me what happened next. Sarah, Seth and I had just gone over to the library to study, just like any other day. We'd been there maybe five minutes when a teacher came running in, yelling that there were kids with guns in the hall. At first, we were like, it's just a joke, a senior prank. Seth said, relax, it's just paintballs. Then we heard the first shots, first down the hall, then coming closer and closer. Mrs. Nielsen was yelling at us to get under the table, but no one listened. And then a kid came in and dropped to the floor. There was blood all over his shoulder. We got under our table, and Mrs. Nielsen was at the phone by now, calling 911. Seth was holding me in his arms, with his hand on my head, because I was shaking so badly. And Sarah was huddled under there with us too, holding onto my legs. Then the two gunmen came into the library, shooting and saying things like, we've been waiting to do this our whole lives and cheering after each shot. I couldn't see anything when those guys came up to Cassie, but I could recognize her voice. I could hear everything like it was right next to me. One of them asked her if she believed in God. She paused like she didn't know what she was going to say. And then she said yes. She must have been scared, but her voice didn't sound shaky at all. It was strong. Then they asked her why she believed in God, 
but never gave her a chance to respond. The killer laughed and then pulled the trigger. You know, as I encounter that story of the Columbine killings in 1999, I cannot help but admire the courage and faith and integrity of Miss Cassie Burnell, a kid, but standing with a gun to her face upon the question of do you believe in God? Knowing full well that if I answer yes, this is probably not going to go well. Still nonetheless says, yes, I do. And it cost her her life. Living for the glory of God cost this young lady her life. And I admire her faith. And I admire her integrity. And this story does that for me as I consider what would I do? What would you do if that was you? Her faith and integrity is incredible. But I'm also reminded just how fragile and often short life can be. How fragile and short the years of our lives can be, even though we think so often that we've got forever. You know, when we were at Covenant Life, um, church in Gatorsburg, Maryland, when I was at Pastors College, we went in one day and there was TV cameras outside the college. And I thought, my goodness, what is, what is this about? Are we celebrities or how is this working now at Pastors College? And we quickly realized the cameras were in no way for the college. They were for the school. And we think, well, what, what's going on at the school? And what we discovered very quickly is on the way to school, a 17-year-old girl and a 14-year-old girl, the 17 with it being her first driving experience, had run off the road straight into a tree and both daughters were killed. And you think, my, life can be over in a flash. You think you've got forever. You think you're just getting on with your days. But in reality, life is so fragile and often short. And as I think about Cassie Burnell and I think about these girls at Covenant Life School that died so young, I think about myself. And I realize that in all reality, I think myself, like so many people, I just think I'm going to last forever. And the way I live and the way I think is just I'm going to be here forever. So I'm thinking about my retirement and what I'm going to do in my retirement. And it's just assumed that I'm going to live all that time, that I'm not going to get sick, that I'm not going to have an accident, that nothing's going to occur. But in all reality, your life and my life, it's fragile. You know, maybe my first experience in this church is in a pastoral ministry will be to marry somebody. What a joy that will be to, as a church, gather and experience somebody being married. But maybe my first administrative job will not be marriage. Maybe it'll be burial. Maybe even before this winter comes or this December comes, maybe we'll experience our first funeral as a church. Nobody thinks like that. But the reality of Scripture is life is short and life is fragile. Psalm 103 verse 15 it says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. That puts our lives into some perspective, does it not? We're not going to last forever. We're like grass. Flourishes for a bit, the wind passes over it, gone. A few generations on, nobody even knows your name. Life is fragile. And life is short. And it's with that reality in mind, that whole premise, knowing that our days are short, that Paul says this in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You see, the days that we live in, my friends, are indeed evil. They're difficult. That's the very point that Paul's trying to make here. Ever since sin came into the world, which is Genesis 3, we've got a few issues going on in our world. Because of the nature of sin, you and I are going to die. It's going to happen. Not at a time that we choose. Only Jesus chose that. For everybody else, we die at the time that he chooses for us. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. He's in control. But no, make no mistake, because of sin in the world, we will indeed die. But even in our lives, we live in a broken down house. We live in a world that's broken. It's not as it should have been. It's not as God made it. 
sin broke it. Things started to take place in the world. And because of that, as Christians, it's a challenge to live here. There will be bad things and evil things in the world that tempt us. And so that's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 early on. You remember that? A few weeks ago. And we looked at the challenge of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. And the point is Christians aren't immune to those things. And yet we live in a world where that's the norm. What's the problem with that? And so we live in a world that is broken and seeks to tempt the called out ones, the ecclesia, Christians, the church, to be involved in those things. And Paul's saying, listen, don't do that. That should have no place amongst you as Christians. There are bad things that seek to tempt us. But you know what? There's also good things that we're called to do by God that the world seeks to seduce us and tempt us away from. So Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's called us to specific tasks in our lives. He's called us to live for him, and he's given us a plan for our lives within that context. And yet we live in a world that seeks to seduce us away from those things. So the world tempts us in the bad, it seeks to tempt us away from the good. The days are indeed evil. And so Paul's point as he looks us in the eye at the end of chapter 5, is simply this. Listen, the days are evil, so make the best use of time. You haven't got long. You're all going to die. And the world is in desperate need of the gospel, so make the best use of time. And look carefully then, look very carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You see, Paul is coming to the end of a whole section on walking. Look with me, look through this. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He introduces this idea of walk. What he's simply on about there is your life, okay? Respond in your life, in the way you live your lives, and what you do with your lives, in a way that ensures that you're living according to the call that you've been received. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So your old ways, they've got to go. You can't walk in them anymore. Chapter 5, verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Do you see the scene? Walk walk, walk. He's talking about the way we live our lives in response to chapters 1, 2, and 3, the way we live our lives. And in chapter 5, verse 15, what he gives us is a quiet crescendo of all of those things. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul takes the time to explain to us, listen, you are here because God called you. Before there was even time, he chose you. He knew your name, knew your frame, know how's you made, and he's chosen you to be adopted into the family of God. The right time, Jesus Christ died for you, and through his death, you've been able to be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled. The Holy Spirit is now a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Without question, heaven is your home. And then he gets to chapter 4 and says, listen, because of all that, because of that grand calling, live this out. Live it out. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in such a way that you don't get put off by the world and seduced into the things they're doing. And live in such a way that you don't get seduced by them to not do the things you should be doing as the ecclesia, as the called out ones, for the glory of God. And then he responds, and listen, there's quite a crescendo. Look carefully then how you walk. Don't be foolish. Don't be unwise. Make the best use of time. Because the days are evil, and you haven't got long, and your time is short. You know, in verses 17 to 21, then, as I've been considering them this week, I think what we have here is what Kent Hughes calls one of the most famous dual commands of Scripture. See, Paul is now taking the time, having quietly crescendo that whole section from the start of chapter 4 through to the end of chapter 5 within this section. It's a quiet crescendo basically saying, you know what? As this then all comes to an end, here's two dual commands, two guiding command principles that will enable you to put this walk into practice. He's bringing out the headlines, okay? Now, sometimes you see things, the headlines are right at the top, and then people unpack them. But Paul's doing the opposite here. 
He's saying, listen, I've given you very clear instruction on how you're to operate in this world. But here's two headlines to finish. Two things that I want you to really get, really apply in your lives. Two guiding commands that will help you. That will explain how we can make the best use of time. How we can walk with the wise. So I only have two points. They're not complicated, but they are important. Number one, what's the first thing that Paul says to us? Well, let's look at verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So number one, we need to reject foolishness and instead understand what the will of the Lord is. If we're going to make the best use of time in our lives, knowing that the days are evil, knowing that time is short, then number one, we must reject foolishness and instead we must understand what the will of the Lord is how the will of the Lord operates in our lives, what indeed His will is for our lives and for any given local church. And one of the things I love about that verse in particular is it echoes very clearly Psalm 1. Let's flick back there. If you've got your Bibles, which would be good. Flick back to Psalm chapter 1. Keep your finger in Ephesians. But Psalm 1 really forms the foundation for this statement that Paul is making there in chapter 5. Verse 17. In Psalm 1, this is what it says, and I love it. This is just, check this out. Listen, blessed is the man. Blessed, baraka, the Hebrew word, basically means supremely happy. It's even written in the plural. The whole point is, this is full-on, true happiness. This dude is happy, okay? There is a joy in his heart, in his life, in what he gives himself to. It doesn't mean he's not suffering. It doesn't mean he's not going through things. But what we have certainly got here in chapter 1 of Psalms is a man who is truly, supremely brach, supremely happy. How? Because I like being happy. I want to be happy. If you hang with John Piper, he says everybody should be happy. That's what hedonism is. The problem is mankind seems to find happiness in creation rather than the creator. But this guy is supremely happy. So what has he understood? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, so there is something that this man does not do. What does he not do? Well, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the way of scoffers. This man, who is truly blessed, does not spend his life looking to the world, knowing that the days are evil for his primary counsel, for his advice, and his values framework for living. He's not trying to find that from the Sydney Post. He's not trying to work that out from the television. He's looking at it. He's refusing to do that. He said, I don't want the world's ways. The world is not even acknowledging that there's a creator. They have rejected the creator. So why would I want to see them as my primary counsel and advice and values framework? Well, I wouldn't. Well, this man is blessed because he doesn't. Well, what does he do instead? Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You want to be truly happy? Here's how. Don't look to the world for advice and counsel and primary values. You give yourself to this word. And on this word, you meditate day and night. You read it. And you meditate on it and you apply it. In verse 3, he then gives us a picture of what this man is like, how it functions. He says, listen, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. So here we have a man who is blessed, who lives his life in a way where he is refreshed and nourished. He's stable, he's durable, he's flourishing and fruitful. In all that he puts his hand to, he is indeed prospering. Well, cut back to Ephesians then. Ephesians 5, verse 17. You see, Paul wants us to be blessed like this man. He wants us to be like the man of Psalm 1. He wants us to get that and work it through in our lives. And so he says, therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see the parallel? Therefore, don't be foolish. Don't look to the world for your primary counsel and advice and values framework. That ain't going to work. But find out what the will of the Lord is. How do I do that? Well, it's here. He's written it down for you. Meditate on it day and night. Give yourself to reading it and meditating on it and applying it. Because when you do, you're making the best use of time. You're preparing to be a man who is blessed. You're preparing to be a man who is fruitful, who is prospering, who is durable, who is able to walk through for the glory of God both in season and out of season. How do we discern what the will of the Lord is? You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a very Pentecostal environment. And so, ironically, understanding the will of the Lord would never start with the Bible. In fact, the Bible would very rarely come into the equation. It would be a lot of waiting meetings. And we never knew quite what happened at the waiting meetings, but we waited for something. So we sang a lot of songs. And then we really believed the Spirit of God would come in between the songs. So those would be times that you're really listening. We even had a song, um, tell, me, tell me what is on your heart, tell me what to do. If you tell me what to do, I will follow you. He must have been looking on saying, I have. You know, <laughs> but that, for some reason that didn't function. I didn't think like that. He has. He's given us his will. He's given us his blueprint for the world, for the church, and indeed for our lives. I think sometimes in decision-making, folks, we can make it so complicated for ourselves. Honestly, we, we, want, we want to make, you know, God, I, I can see that you've written in your word to me. But if I wake up in the morning and there's a blue sock and a white sock and a red sock by my bed, then I will know you have spoken. He has spoken. Just apply it. Read it. Meditate on it. Apply it. it we do not read in Psalm 1 where he says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the Lord day and night. And then he puts a blue sock, red sock, a white sock out the back and hopes that God might move. Himself. It's ridiculous. It's the Word. We read it, and we meditate on it and apply it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, which is a cracking verse, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Everybody kind of knows that bit. But there's verse 17 as well, where he says, So that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. You want to be competent and equipped for every good work? Well, that means understanding what the will of the Lord is. It's, it's here. The God excelled words of Scripture. This is God's word. This is his will. King David got it in Psalm 119. He says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He understood it's here. God's will is here. He is helping me with my decision-making. He is going to assist me in how I'm to move forward in my life. He has written to me to give me His will for my life. So, Lord, help me understand. What is your will for my life? How do I find good values, not in the world, but in here? How do I find out what do I do with my resources, not in the world, but from here? How do I get my confidence and my identity and joy, not according to the world, but according to you, Lord? How can I be blessed in the way that you've called me to be? How can I be useful in the way that you've called me to be? How can I discern your incredible will for my life, Lord? Because you have bought me with a price. You can have me. Tell me what to do. Oh, he has. He has. It's all here. So here's my question. How's your Bible reading going right now? How are you going right now and giving yourselves to the reading, to the meditating on and applying of God's word? See, this is important. The Apostle Paul's only given us two things to sum up. One of them is this. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we don't want to be turning around saying, well, uh, it's not really quite working for me right now. You know what? It needs to work for us right now. Because God's word is vital in our lives. And if we're going to be people of the word that God's called us to do, then we need to be people who are reading it, meditating on it, and applying it. And you know what? I think we can be tempted by the world in this. 
Honestly, I know I have. I, I mean, I was thinking this week, I, I could give you a list of about 10 things that I've been tempted in by the world when it comes to Bible reading alone, as it comes to why I probably don't need to do it, or why it's not that important. But in reality, it is, and we have to guard them against succumbing to the world's ways and the world's ideas and the, flesh, the flesh's desires. See, one thing I've heard before and used before is because reading isn't my preference, I don't really need to do it. You know, I just don't really like it, so I'll give it a miss. Well, are we saying then just because we don't like something, we never have to do it? You know, teenagers don't usually like to bath. <laughs> but, you know, we, they need to do it. I don't like vegetables, but there does come a point when you have to have the occasional piece of carrot to um, keep you going. You know, there are certain things in life you know you know, I don't like going to the dentist, but, you know, when all your teeth are falling out, there comes a point in life when you need to do it. And reading for many years of my life was not my preference. I mean, honestly, before being 18 years old, I read one book. It was The Adventures of He-Man, and it had a lot of pictures in, and I loved it. Apart from that, I just was not into reading. I could not understand why on earth God hadn't made the Bible into a movie. It would be a lot easier when you're a teenager. I mean, what is up with this? There are so many words in this. And I didn't really understand how the Bible was put together. So I start in Genesis. I thought that's quite interesting. Exodus, I would like. I get to Leviticus. I want to end my life. It was just like, what is this? I'm so bored. And tell me what to do. I'll go to the waiting meetings. Thank you. I mean, it just it didn't seem to function. I didn't really understand what it was. And so I just get bored. It wasn't my preference. And so I decided that because it wasn't my preference, uh, I just won't read it. But that's crazy. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. There's a time in our lives when we just have to grow up, to be honest, and say, you know what? I've got to do this because I've been bought with a price. And according to Scripture, this is vital. I need to understand the will of the Lord. I can't get that by not reading. I need to read. God in His sovereignty has decided to write it down. And so I need to become a reader. Now, if you can't read, honestly, I, I don't anticipate there's somebody here with that. But if you can't read, we'd love to um, teach you to read. love to help you to read. I remember back when I was in the old church serving there, and uh, we did a Christianity Explored course, and two, two guys in the front row, one guy was a cardiovascular surgeon, and the guy next to him was a tractor driver. And when we, when we were talking to him, I, it was tricky to get him to read. And then he eventually said, it's because I can't. I can't read. We did a whole Christianity Explored in a place called Betis, which is about a mile away from the Christchurch Center. We had 12 people on it. We gave out the books. Ten of them couldn't read. You have to rethink then at that point about what we're going to do. But part of the answer is, you know what? We need to help you to read. So would you like us to do some English classes? Because God's Word is written down. In the meantime, let's give you some CDs and let's help you. But actually... Let's make these things function in our lives. Folks, we need to be readers. And so don't give in to that temptation, the lie of the flesh, that because reading isn't your preference, you don't need to do it. Because if that's the case, you're looking God in the eye and saying, thanks very much, I don't really need you. Is that what we believe? The second lie that I lived in for, for so long is that I just don't have the time. I'm just so busy. I've got a lot on. I said that from, I was about, till, I started saying that when I was about nine and I'm now 35, and I'm still saying the same thing. You know, you realize that time is a, is a moving thing. That You know, there's always time for things that are important for us. Here's the thing with that. I say I just don't have the time. Paul says, you don't have time not to. Because the days are evil. And we've got to make the best use of time. Because you haven't got long left. You haven't got time not to. You know, we can spend our lives just putting things off till tomorrow and then next week and, oh, I'll get on to that next year. Next year, I'll do the read the Bible through in a year. I'm really going to give myself. And then we get to the next year and lo and behold, something else comes up. And you're too busy again. Folks, we always have time for things that are important. This is important. We need to live our lives in a manner worthy of the call. We need to walk with the wise. We need to make the best use of time. And so number one, we need to reject foolishness and instead understand what the will of the Lord is. Number two then, second and final point, verse 18, we need to reject drunkenness 
and instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, when it comes down to it, this verse can cause a great deal of confusion, can't it? I mean, that idea of not getting drunk with wine, that is where every evangelical on the planet nods, oh yes, very bad. Drunkenness, very, very bad. And you've got everybody on board with that. And you can go to pretty much any church and say, listen, I'm thinking it's probably not right to get drunk. And they say, oh yes, very, very bad. And in some situations, they try and, you know, they take it on and they say, no, it's not even right to drink. You think, really? It's not what I, I think it says the word drunk in my Bible, not drink. Um, so it's not, so it's okay to drink. You know, Jesus rocks up to a wedding in John 2 and he, uh, you know, they're probably bladdered anyway because it's towards the end of the ceremony, and he gets the best wine out, which would be the strongest wine, and he says, well, here you go. He's not condoning being drunk, but he clearly doesn't have a problem with people drinking. Charles Adam Spurgeon said, if people tell me I can't drink, I lift a pint for the glory of God in front of them. And I think that, that, that's my type of guy. I just like that. You, really? Is it against? Good. Praise God. You know, it just, I just like that about Charles Adam Spurgeon. And listen, there's a time to forego drinking, but here's the time. Biblically, 1 Corinthians, you forego drinking because of a weaker brother. So if somebody struggled with it in the past and there's been an issue in their lives, then I would gladly not drink. That would be no issue for me to forego that. But if somebody said, no, I'm a legalist and that's wrong, I'm with Charles Adam Spurgeon because it's not Pharisees here. So if God forbids it, then we forbid it. If God allows it, oh, we allow it. And we drink then for, for the glory of God. But universally acclaimed in Christendom, I think everybody would say, uh, yes, getting drunk is, is very bad, for it leads to debauchery. You know, it leads to different things in our lives that we don't want, and so we'll give that a miss. Here's when then Christendom begins to change, though. They say to me, listen, you are right. Do not get drunk on the wine. And you say, that is absolutely right. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And some people say, oh, yes. And other people go, hmm, um, really? Um, let's phasing out at this point because there's a nervousness about that phrase being filled with the spirit like oh my gosh um you know before we know it we're going to be raising our hands and dancing and speaking in tongues i am nervous so let's just stick with the not getting drunk i can't do that we can't do that we have to put ourselves under god's word and he clearly says we need to reject drunkenness fine and instead be filled with the spirit now I think the reason why we can be nervous of that sometimes and why it can cause a degree of confusion is for twofold. Sometimes it's because of our experiences. Okay, so maybe you've been in a church for years um, that historically have taught that being filled with the Spirit is just like, you know, it's, it's, it's theologically okay but functionally wrong. You know, that's the way it seems to work. And we know it's a theological entity, but actually functionally uh, I'm busy today, thanks, let's not bring that up here, it's a naughty word. That, that's, not, that's not the case. And yet our experiences can, can cause us to be that way when they don't function. We get nervous of it and we back away from it. I've been the other way. So growing up more of a Pentecostal background, you think being filled with the Spirit means that we pray over people at length until they sing in tongues. That's crazy as well. But here's what happened to me. When I was then about 20 and realized that's not really the case, I backed off everything as if this is all rubbish. Well, that's not right either. We have to sit under God's word. So it's probably not that, but it's probably not that. We can't be informed by our experiences. We've got to actually come back to God's word and say, you know, what is this? But our experiences can confuse us. I certainly concede to that. But for many of us, I think this is confusing because we just don't know what it means. We have no idea. Be filled with the Spirit. Thanks. No idea how that functions, what that means, how we're meant to pursue that, if we're meant to pursue that. So listen, what I want us to do is I want us to pause on this phrase for the rest of our time, pull it apart exegetically a bit, and, and really spend some time on, you know, what does this mean? Because one thing's for sure, to Paul, this is not a negotiable. To Paul, this is vital. As he brings the quiet crescendo together and says, listen, just two things then, church. Two things that I need you to get, that I need you to grasp, that I need you to understand. You've got to make the best use of time. I need you to walk with the wise. Here's how. Number one, don't be foolish, but instead discern the will of the Lord. And number two, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. 
don't shoot the messenger. This is what he's saying. Now, this is a clearly a very, very important issue to the Apostle Paul. And so a few observations about this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. First of all, this is a command. This is not an optional. Paul is not saying, if you fancy it. If you fancy it, read your Bible. If you fancy it, be filled with the Spirit. If you fancy it, don't get drunk. No, he's saying, no, I command you. This is God's word. God's command is, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's also a command that is in the present continuous sense. The word there in the Greek is pleru. And the whole premise of being filled, although we read it as be filled, it, you, could, you could actually say be ongoingly and continually filled. It's this present continuous sense. So it's hitting you on the button, but it's also talking about this needs to play out in your life regularly. See, this is not a one-off event. That's what I grew up thinking that being filled with the Spirit was. It's a one-off event, and everybody around knows it's happened. That's not what it is biblically. According to the Bible, this is a continual and ongoing event. So everybody is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, okay? So people say, I'm a bit nervous of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Bad news, he indwells you anyway. What? Yeah, chapter 1. He's a deposit, sealing your inheritance. Really? Yes, he's there. Okay, but there's clearly a theological difference between that in chapter 1 and this ongoing filling in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Because Paul in chapter 1 is saying, no, you're, this is a deposit sealing your inheritance. That's a one-off event. Otherwise, we believe that you can lose your salvation. We don't believe that, right? We're Calvinists, okay? Good. We don't believe that. But we do believe that you need to be filled with the Spirit. And because the tense is in this ongoing, continuous sense, you realize that this is an experience that we should experience regularly. Jeff Perswell, who's the Dean of the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, says, whether our background is raving Pentecostal, or seriously reserved evangelical, a common mistake that we can make is to define the Spirit's work as simply a one-off, one-moment-in-time event. A singular moment that happens to us as Christians, and then we move on. Yet the unquestionable emphasis in Scripture is not on a one-off, isolated experience of the Spirit, but ongoing experiences of the Holy Spirit. Ongoing moments where we are particularly aware of Him, Ongoing moments where his active presence is easily identifiable in our lives and our churches. So it's a command. Sovereign Grace Church, you must be filled with the Spirit. Not just once. That's a theologically distinct event. But continually, over and over again. Okay. Well, to be filled with the Spirit, number three... It means to come under the influence and sway of the Spirit. That's not the third point, though, by the way. That's just observations of this moment. I think this is often a confused one. We, we read, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but filled with the Spirit. And I think we can have in our mind this idea of being filled, that we're like a glass, and He's the Spirit, and He kind of fills up the glass, and we won't get drunk because that's like a glass, and, and we're glasses. You know, if you study, um, if you study biblical counseling, which we'll be looking at doing some in Invest. And one of the models is the Larry Crabb model. So it's this idea that as Christians, we're all cups. But we're leaky cups. I know it's sad. We're leaky cups. And, and, and God pours us up and we get filled, but we leak. So we need more fillings. That's lovely. Unbiblical, but lovely. And it's a very pleasant scene. And, and for a long time, I thought I quite fancy that. I fancy being a love a lovely love cup for Jesus that leaks. But it's not, it's not, it's not true. It's, it's not true. And that is not what Paul is in any way saying here. The point is, being filled with the Spirit means to come under the influence and sway of the Spirit. Those two things are quite different. So, picture the scene. Do not get drunk with wine. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. Why? Because you come under the influence and sway of it. You drink, you get tanked up. You know, nobody minds a drink, but you get tanked up and you say, <laughs> it's not going to be very good. Because what happens is you end up in sinful patterns in your life and all sorts of things start happening when you're drunk. When you come into the influence and sway of drink, it is not a good thing. So don't do that. Instead, come under the influence and sway of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come under His influence. Come under His sway in your life. Do you see the imagery? 
it's quite different to this idea of I'm a cup and I just need to be filled. He's saying, no, instead of getting drunk on wine, give yourself to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Come under its influence and his sway. And being filled with the Spirit, make no mistake, results in some really good fruit, doesn't it? That's what he gives us. Listen, verse 19, from verse 18 through to the end of verse 21 is all one sentence in the Greek. That's just one long, blah. You know, he's just trying to get it all out there. But it's all linking to the same thing. And so he makes the comment, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then from verse 19 to 21, he gives us three things of what that looks like. Some of the fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Three markers of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Wholehearted worship, thankfulness, and humility. Well, hang on, Dave, what about the crazy stuff? What about it? That's not the conversation today. We'll look at 1 Corinthians another time. But those aren't the markers of being filled with the Spirit. The markers of being filled with the Spirit are wholehearted worship, thankfulness, and humility. The Holy Spirit's role, one of His main roles, is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what happens. You get filled with the Spirit. Well, what happens? Well, for a start, your worship becomes pretty wholehearted. It says addressing one another. That can often throw us off. And my background, it became quite hilarious because this idea of addressing one another meant at different times in the worship, I mean, I just don't think this would go down at Sovereign Grace Church, but at different times in the worship, we would say, okay, now turn to one another and address them with the song. (laughs) Be bold, be strong. It's very, very awkward. You know, it's not good. But the idea was, you know, we're meant to be addressing one another in the song, so we better, here we go, let's have a go. It's ridiculous and mental, but that's where you get it from. You know, it's this idea of addressing what, that's not what it's talking about. It's just talking about congregational singing. Have you ever been in a congregational singing and you stop and you're listening to everybody else and that imparts wisdom to you? That's what it is. That's why it's important that we teach doctrinally right songs. Because you don't want to stop and be addressed by heresy. That's awkward. So that's why we take very seriously the songs that we sing, making sure they are indeed biblically accurate. But listen, make a note of this. When we are filled with the Spirit, we address one another in those psalms and hymns. I love this. I was challenged by this this week. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. What does wholehearted worship look like? Seriously, what does it look like? Here's a question, and do not be offended. Does it look like this? Does it look like this? We all know it doesn't. Because we all know that 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 just doesn't look very wholehearted. And it isn't a game. This isn't a game of, well, therefore we should... Be really expressive just because it proves a point. No, 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 no. What I'd say is, listen, if that's all the worship cultivates in your life, we need to pursue all the more you've been filled with the Spirit then. Because that's not wholehearted. You want to know what wholehearted is? Just read the Psalms. And they're dancing around. I mean, this is full on. This is full on for Jesus. It becomes easy to see. I went to Hillsong the other week to examine what they're doing, primarily to learn. I think there's things that they do that are very effective, and they do it very well. And one of the things that, that does always inspire me in the way they do it, I, I've come from a church that would be very similar, covenant life in, in America would be very similar. Um, there is just a hunger for the Lord. So as soon as the music starts, one thing that is clear is they are there. They are singing. And as you observe, you would certainly come away thinking, that visually looks like wholehearted worship to me. They don't look bored. They are throwing themselves in. And you can just you can sit. And I remember there was a guy standing in front of me and a lady. And as soon as the music comes on, they are just like, boom. And you're like, whoa, you know, what's, what have you been drinking? There's just this expectancy that God is going to meet them. 
There is this expectancy that, listen, I'm going to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with my whole heart because I believe Jesus died for me, and I'm excited about that, and I believe that as I draw near to you, you will draw near to me, so I'm coming. I like that. I think there's something right about that. It's a fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's something in that. They're connected. There's something of worship that involves the Holy Spirit. Thankfulness, verse 20. Well, it's obvious. But when you spend time with the Lord and when you're filled by the Spirit, you grow in a delight for Him, do you not? You grow in a delight. You're so grateful as you're aware, I deserved God's wrath. I deserve to be in hell. But that's not what I got. I received His grace and His mercy. And I have a family. And I have a home. And I have friends. And I have local church that are paying for me. I'm so grateful. It's an expression of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You grow in wholehearted worship. You grow in thankfulness. And you also grow in humility for exactly the same reason. As the Holy Spirit lives in your life, the key is Holy Spirit. And He helps you realize just who you really are without God and who He really is. It cannot help but create humility in your life. Because you realize I deserve nothing but I've been a recipient of everything. Being filled with the Holy Spirit results in some really good fruit. And so it's not rocket science to figure it out, is it? Okay, so it's a command. It's present continuous. I need to go on being filled in this way. The whole premise is to come under his influence and his sway, and there will be good fruits in it. So I want this. We're all probably thinking right now, hopefully, I, I want that. I want it. Here's the thing that gets a bit confusing about it, just a final thing that I want to bring up. This command to be filled is a little bit awkwardly in the passive voice. And that makes it tricky. Because here's what we're saying. It's a command. I've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Good, I'm coming. Okay, let's do this. Um, Do I need to come weekly for that? Oh, definitely, without a doubt. Probably daily. I just want to be ongoingly and continuously putting myself under the sway of the Holy Spirit. I want this. I want Him in my life all the more. I want to experience Him. Okay, I'm it for that. Is there going to be fruits? Oh, yes, without any doubt. There's going to be some serious fruits in my life as I pursue Him. Here's the only thing. You can't do it to yourself. What? How's that work? That's rubbish. I thought I was just going to turn up and this happens. No. No. It's in the passive voice. So you're commanded to be filled. But you need somebody to do the filling, right? Otherwise, there's no filling. It's in the passive voice. So we can't do this ourselves. It's something that has to be done for us, done to us. And I think this is where so many Christians then just buck out. So that's just way too complicated. I don't get it. I'll just crack on with my life and I'll see if anything happens at any point. Mm, That's not what the rest of the Bible talks of. The rest of the Bible makes it very clear to us how we can indeed position ourselves to be filled. We can't earn it. It's not something that we have to perform before the Lord and then maybe it's going to happen. That's not it. But it is something that we need to position ourselves for, for the glory of God. And so just to close... Here's a couple of ideas on how we do this, how we position ourselves before the Lord so that we can be filled. And I trust these will be helpful for you. Listen, if this is true, if this is true, then according to Paul, this is vital. You are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not an optional. And if it's not an option to Paul, I'm not going to make it an option in this local church. That would be wrong. That would be poor pastoring. And I'm not going to avoid it just because it can be confusing. I I want us to experience this. I want us to know this. Because the Apostle Paul, under the influence of God, is saying, listen, this is important. It's equally as important as understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's why they're dual commands. So this is full-on important. So how do I position myself? Well, three things. Number one, we hungrily seek after God in the spiritual disciplines. We, humbly, we hungrily seek after God in the spiritual disciplines. You know, it's so easy, I think, to take our spiritual disciplines as a tick box event. You know what I'm saying? You get up, you do your three and a half minutes, and you think, oh, thank goodness, that's, that's got that done. Um, I don't think that's what it is. You know, spiritual disciplines are about a relationship with God. 
So imagine how my wife would feel if I got up in the morning, I did my three and a half minutes, ticked the box, and okay, see ya. It's not ideal for relationship building, to say the least, and yet that's what we can do with the Lord. The spiritual disciplines are about being with the Lord, about encountering Him, about spending time with Him, understanding His Word, praying to Him, worshipping Him. It's a time, it's a quiet time, a time with the Lord. And as we hungrily seek after God in spiritual disciplines, I think there's a difference between hungrily, hungrily seeking after God in spiritual disciplines and just doing spiritual disciplines to tick a box. I think it's a big difference. Spiritual disciplines to tick a box are not very effective. Hungrily seeking after God in spiritual disciplines are very effective because we understand this, James 4 verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Folks, when you spend time with the Lord in the mornings, are you ticking a box or are you sitting there saying, Lord, here I come. I'm drawing near to you. Would you draw near to me? Would you speak to me through your word? Would you inhabit my praises? Would you inhabit my, pr- would you hab- inhabit my prayers? Because I want to be with you. Because you're a person. And Holy Spirit, you live in my life. And you're, one of your roles and your joys then is to allow me to, to experience the active presence of God. So would you be with me? Would you encounter me today? We hungrily seek after God in the spiritual disciplines. Now listen, God is omnipresent. All right? Fact. So God is equally present everywhere in all his fullness. Fact. But nonetheless, there is something that James is saying here about those that draw near to God. There is something of an active presence where, yes, God is equally present everywhere all the time. And yet, nonetheless, there are times both biblically and functionally when you know God is near. He's near. I know it. I'm walking through a trial in my life and I have a peace that surpasses understanding. I sense the Lord with me. What is that? Because God was there anyway, right? What is it? It's his active presence. It's when the Holy Spirit, for some reason, in God's kindness, pulls back the curtains of our eyes and allows us to see him and sense him in an unusual way. We need to hungrily seek after God in our spiritual disciplines that way. Now, every time you meet with the Lord, is it going to be amazing? Are you going to leave dancing like Miriam? Probably not. But nonetheless, there is a disposition of, you're real. You're a person. You're not a set of doctrines in the Bible. You're a person. And so, Lord, be with me. Number two, we hungrily seek after God in the corporate gathering of the church. Now, God can and indeed does draw near to us when we're on our own, right? That, that happens in our lives. However, functionally in the Bible and experientially for many of us, it would also be true to say that God seems to come in increased measure when we gather together as a local church. There is something corporate. Most of my best memories are when I've been praying with a group of people or worshipping with a group of people, and I could take you to the moment and take you to the feeling of just overwhelming grace, awareness of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's being filled with the Holy Spirit. But often those experiences are corporate. They're when I'm with others. And Donald Whitney says it this way. He says, God will manifest his presence to you in congregational worship, in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but the Bible says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. God manifests his presence in different ways to the living stones of his temple when they are gathered than he does to them when they are apart. I love that. You know, I think for so many people, they never experience God fully in worship because they just turn up and sing. And there's a big difference between turning up and singing and turning up and seeking to draw near to God in singing, believing that he rewards those who seek after him. Will we approach him? We believe he's a person. We believe he's there. We believe that he encounters us. He believes that he wants to encounter us. And that's one of those things I just want to encourage you in. Don't, please do not, and I know this is an Australian temptation. In Britain, we have our own other unique temptations. One of them is moaning. But in Australia, there's not so many moaners, but people come late to everything. You know what? When we do that, I think we not only rob the congregation of our presence, 
because it's difficult to be addressed in singing by somebody who isn't there. It's a distraction when people come in late, but I also think we miss something because when we come and we say, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to draw near to you, believing that you're going to draw near to me. I come on a Sunday morning, honestly, I arrive prior to a Sunday morning full of faith that I'm going to encounter God this morning. I'm not just singing. I don't just want to sing songs. I could do that at a birthday party. I want to encounter God. I want, I want to be with God. I want to spend time with Him. I want to hear the congregation singing and be addressed by them. I want us to be experiencing, according to 1 Corinthians, the fruits, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy and healing and different things that still, without question, still exist today, both biblically and experientially. This should be a function of the way things work in our lives. You examine your Bible, whether it be Acts, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, things happen when God's people gather. Every time. I'm not sure they were in the upper room saying, you know what, I've been a bit busy this morning. I'm running a bit behind the time. I'm ready. That's where I want us to go to. And I don't care how long it's going to take. Please don't let me still be saying that to you when I'm 74. But if there's any way to speed that process, if you know what, God is worthy of singing with all our heart, knowing that if we seek after him, he will encounter us. My ideal then would be, to be honest, and when we pray on a Sunday morning at quarter to 10, that that room is filled with people. It is filled with people saying, Lord, would you enable your people to meet with you this morning? Would you prepare our hearts? Would you prepare through the gift of teaching, through the gift of worship? We want to encounter you, Lord. We're ready. Is there anything you want to say to your people this morning? Lord, you say in your word to eagerly desire the gifts, particularly prophecy. Is there anything you want to say to me this morning for your people? That's a different dynamic of service then when that's happening as opposed to coming in late and then just singing. We hungrily seek after God in the corporate gathering of the church. And finally, I didn't go to pastor's college for this one, we ask. Luke 11 verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask. So, Lord, the days are evil then, right? Yeah. It's evil. You're going to die. And your time is probably shorter than you think. Don't put off to another week what needs to be done today. Don't put off till tomorrow what needs to be done today. You never know when your time is up. And the days are distinctly evil. And so Paul's exhortation then is simple. Let us look carefully then how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. How? By being people of the word. Don't be foolish, but seek to discern the will of the Lord in all things. And by the Spirit, not getting drunk, but instead being filled with the Spirit. See how it works? We need to be a people of the word. We need to be a people of the Spirit. In some situations, it's as if those are mutually exclusive things. We're not, according to Paul, They're mutually standing side by side in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 5. My friends, listen. Our time is running out. We get one shot at this, and then we're gone. So let us make the best use of time. Let's throw ourselves into the wood, and let us regularly, hungrily seek after God in private, in the corporate gathering, and ask Him, Lord, encounter us and fill us with your Spirit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we bring this section in chapter 5 to a close before we next week begin to look at relationships and how the gospel and your spirit revolves and works in our relationships, Lord, we do just come as we close today and hungrily ask you, Lord, would we be a people of your word and your spirit? Lord, help us to 
train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Help us to be a people of your word. Not putting off till tomorrow what needs to change today. But instead being people that can rightly handle your word. Who can understand it. Lord, you say in Psalm 1 that he's blessed because he meditates on your word day and night. This is full on. So Lord, help us. Help us to grasp your word in new ways. And Lord, help us then to not only be transformed in our thinking, but in our hearts. Lord, would we regularly encounter you in our quiet times, in our corporate gatherings. Jesus, you encourage us to ask you for the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we come as we finish to ask you. Lord, would you fill each and every one of the members of this local church by your grace and for your glory? Would we know you in an increased measure as we seek after you in our lives? Would we be a people that are transformed not only by the gospel, but are transformed by the person and work of the Holy Spirit with wholehearted singing, with humility and gratitude being three clear markers of how we live our lives. Holy Spirit, help us come into our lives increasing in measure and fill us as we come under your sway and your influence each and every day of our lives. Lord, help us to live this out and therefore make the best use of time. In Jesus' name.